0: Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Justin Ware and Patrick Abelos from Night Shift coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. We follow him on Instagram at FulmerHOU. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm in
1: the cool AC as we're in the dog days of Houston, end of throws, hot and humid summer. We've got about three weeks to go
0: before the first cool front. I can feel it.
1: <laughs> I love that phrase, cool front.
0: All right. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one big news from Chris Shepard. He announced that he is going to relocate Georgia James. From its current home at 1100 Westheimer to a new location in Regent Square, which is a mixed use development currently under construction at the corner of Dunlavey and West Dallas. So just a couple of miles away from his current location. In addition, he will open a new unannounced, unnamed restaurant in Regent Square. And finally, Hay Merchant, the craft beer bar that has been Georgia James's companion at 1100 Westheimer will close at the end of the year. Fulmer, I know that's quite a bit to take in. Let's start, I guess, with Hay Merchant. What do you What do you think about the news that it's closing? And do you have any fun Hay Merchant memories?
1: Um, well, as far as it's closing, it's you know it's more of a beer location. You know that has good good food. You know good serviceable food, but people are drawn there more for the beer. So whether that reopens or where, it, you know, he could reopen that because it's an established identity. Uh, you know, I think he could do that fine. I think all, all of these closings represent kind of a bigger deal for them than it does for us, the dining public, because we're really just getting kind of new locations for some of the same things in the same area. And, and in some ways that is a big deal because he has a very loyal following, very loyal following in the Montrose area. Uh, and he's you know he's keeping to that so he's gonna have they're gonna have to deal with you know moving staff uh a lot of logistics in doing that it's not just a simple hey we'll close on sunday and tuesday we'll open in the new place you know it's a lot of work um but i you know i think they're up to it
0: well yeah and i i I mean i don't want to i don't want to pass over hey merchant too quickly i mean this was the the craft beer concept that Chris sort of developed with his former business partner, Kevin Floyd. Kevin obviously is no longer part of Underbelly Hospitality. He just opened Shoot the Moon out in Spring Branch. So kind of left Hay Merchant a little bit bereft of a champion, at least internally. And, and craft beer, I think the, the conversation around craft beer, the enjoyment around craft beer, to a certain extent has, has shifted from bars like Hay Merchant. I mean, obviously the Flying Saucer remains popular, uh, but to local breweries. And so if you're a craft beer drinker, your odds are more likely that you're going to go to St. Arnold or 8th Wonder or Eureka Heights or, or any of the other breweries to, to get a beer, than maybe to a bar. And, and I think the decision to close Hay Merchant with an uncertain future, maybe it will reopen, maybe it won't. Uh, but Chris said it certainly, if it does, it certainly won't have 70 taps, kind of reflects that shift in how people consume craft beer.
1: Um. Yes and no. I mean, a lot of the beer nerds I know like places like that, you know, like, you know, because they can get all the different beers in one spot or many of them, as opposed to, you know, if you go to 8th Wonder, you're getting all 8th Wonder beer. You you go to St. Arnold's, you're getting nothing but St. Arnold's, which is a great experience in its own right. But for a variety, uh, you know, these represent a good niche in the system. Um, I mean, I love going to Hay Merchant. That was kind of like a post shift place to go after, you know, a long night. We would. Uh, yeah, there was a period there where a, a group of mine from who I work with, we would convene there, and you get the chicken fried steak for like four people and share it, and there's probably still some left over.
0: Right. I mean, I right. I mean, that that's a very good chicken fried steak. Uh, those chicken wings are are very good. That was the original home of the cease and desist burger, which of course will. We'll live on at Underbelly Burger that's opening at the farmer's market later this year. But yeah, I mean, and it's the only place to get the Korean Goat and Dumplings, which of course was the signature dish at, at Underbelly, Chris's original restaurant. And so, you know, it's not clear necessarily what's going to happen to any of those items that have been associated with Chris since 2012. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's going to be, I, I saw considerable consternation on social media about. The impending closure of Hay Merchant, uh, a lot of people planning to, to visit there, you know, once or twice, at least before the end of the year. I, I know I certainly will. Uh, but yeah, I, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to let that go without sort of observing because I it's meant, it's meant a lot to a lot of people for almost 10 years now.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I live in the Montrose area and part of the reason why I live here is is for its identity for it's not just that it's a walkable place, but that it's not it's not taken over by the chain restaurants and and, uh, and big box stores, you know, as the you know, but real estate values just continue to go up. And, you know, I was thinking about that, the changing face of Montrose, you know, changed. You know, there it is. I'll say the cliche. It is inevitable. Um so you hope that it kind of moves forward with still maintaining that air or that feel of, of what makes Montrose great. You know. And we've certainly seen openings of, of places that continue in that tradition, um, you know, Ostia, Dorn, and even smaller places. So it's not, but the closing of like Davino and now the movement of Georgia James and Hay Merchant and then that whole space at Westheimer and Montrose, which is still like a TBA, Uh, you know, what will that be? And so what will the face of Montrose be in one, two, you know, five years?
0: We'll see. Oh, right. No, I mean, major changes coming to that corner, right? The Montrose Collective is almost fully built next to Uchi. And then you sort of alluded to it, but I'll I'll just be a little bit more explicit. There's that lot across the street from Georgia James that used to have half price books and specs and 369. That's been completely leveled. Scansica, a real estate developer, has purchased that property. They have not revealed what their plans are, but presumably it will be some sort of mixed use development. You know, La Column Door right next to that just opened their high rise tower uh, that got added on the back of the hotel. So uh, a lot of changes in that, in that kind of heart of Montrose area and, and the future is uncertain. Um, but, but I think from Chris Shepard's perspective, moving Georgia James to Regent Square makes a lot of sense right? It's, a, it's physically bigger, you know, 200, about 250 seats downstairs, another hundred or so in an upstairs lounge with the patio. It's a new, you know, brand new building, brand new construction. And of course, you know, developers subsidize uh, the cost of restaurant buildouts, especially for a very high profile, very desirable tenant like Chris Shepard and Georgia James. So the, the appeal of moving makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and and you know, from a Georgia James perspective, it'll get a whole new look. You know, it's it's meant to be sort of uh, a little more feminine, maybe a little bit more romantic, which I think is very on brand for them. And and I'm excited about it from that perspective because I, I have enjoyed my meals at Georgia James.
1: Absolutely, and, and keeping it in the neighborhood and and, and like you just mentioned, it, you know, kind of revitalizes. So putting it in a new space um, and then people, you know, it, it gives that shot in the arm where people are like, oh. You know, I haven't been to Georgia James in a long time. They're in this new space. I want to check it out. So there'll be that whole throng of of people that come to that. And so, you know, it it makes a lot of sense.
0: No, absolutely. Um, Anything else on this before we move on? Um, No,
1: I like the, you know, sort of like the monster that Chris has created, you know, with the Korean goat dumplings You know, that he couldn't take off the menu, you know, things like that. And the cease and desist, those will continue to live onward uh, in whatever iterations he has. You know, you can look at one fifth as almost in some ways like an experiment uh, to some extent it is. And so they can kind of. Now they can cherry pick, like, what's the best of that? How do, what kind of identity do we want to create? What was successful and what do we like to do? They have, you know, I, I, ho- I hope at least that they have a certain flexibility on, on really doing things the way they want to do it, you know? Uh, and, you know, they, he's smart enough to know what the market will bear uh, and, you know, staying true to himself has always been a successful thing. So I, I hope that continues.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that's well said. And, and, you know, and then we'll see what the second restaurant in region square is, you know, they've sort of hinted that it might be based on one of the one fifth concepts. I think the current, uh, red sauce iteration has been pretty successful. They're going to keep that going all the way through the end of the year. So we'll see. I mean, it could be red sauce. It could be Mediterranean. It could be, uh, one of the more southerny Gulf coast type concepts, but, uh, the only thing I'm certain of is that it won't be romance languages that, uh, that for the most part seems to have been a failed
1: experiment. Yeah, but, uh, I don't think that'll happen. I mean, one of the, the great things about Chris and his staff is that, you know, Chris leads with this real enthusiasm and it's very in- infectious, you know, and so he's great at getting his staff behind him on that and hiring the right people. And so that becomes that, yeah, you know, that really translates or transmutes into, you know, the diner experience that people are willing to try certain things maybe that aren't necessarily traditional because Chris is cooking from his heart and cooking with a sense of passion. And as much as that sounds like a cliche,
0: I really think it fits in this case. No, absolutely. All right. Let's move on to topic. Number two, big news from two chefs who've worked at, at really some of the, the most interesting and exciting restaurants in the world. Uh, Baso, a Basque Spanish restaurant is coming to the Heights you know this is this is an easy way to get my attention when you when you tell me that a chef has worked at uh, Mugaritz in Spain and Cezanne in San Francisco, both of which have been on the world's fifty best list, both of which have held two or in Cezanne's case three Michelin stars. Uh, you have my attention. His his business partner and co chef Jacques Veron met Fernando at Angler, which is a a restaurant with a San Francisco location that holds one Michelin star. And then Jock just kind of threw out that he had worked at a restaurant in Tokyo that was uh, founded by a former chef at Noma, you know, uh, again, on that list of the very best restaurants in the world. And so they're bringing all of those experiences to what should be a, a pretty casual, relatively affordable restaurant in the Heights. And, and frankly, I just couldn't be more excited to see uh, what becomes of it? You know, with that
1: kind of pedigree, you know, people have worked at places that aren't just highly lauded within their own environment, but they become not and not just destination worthy within that you know geographical area, but like there are that rarefied group who you know international travels or people who travel specifically you know to go to these places over you know internationally, and all those places places are on that really short rarefied list, and so. You know, the potential, of course, is intriguing as well as exciting.
0: Right. And, and I should say, you know, this isn't, it's not like they stodged there, right? Fernando worked for two years at Cezanne and then opened both locations of Angler. You know, he spent a year working at Mugari. So, you know, and he was the fire cook at Cezanne and everything at Cezanne. It's all about, you know, all of these different triaging techniques for different kinds of meat and game and then all cooked over live fire. So, you know, they're not going to have necessarily the big wood burning hearth, but they are going to use Japanese style yakitori grills with uh, the binchotan charcoal. So they'll get that kind of smoky effect. And these are two guys who really know what they're doing when it comes to that
2: kind of cooking.
1: Yeah. I never ate a saison. It was kind of a bucket list item that I didn't make it to. Uh, I have several friends who've eaten there and I've certainly followed them on their Instagram page. Uh, And, you know, they are, their reputation is well-deserved, uh, you know, as just one of the most incredible places, not just in the Bay Area, but in the country and certainly internationally, uh, you know, and, and I've seen it before. I've seen when when guys who like cut potatoes at a three-star, you know, and then they put it on their resume and that's nice that, you know, or that maybe they stodged there for a short period, like you t- you said, but to have like, you know, part of the hardcore staff doing something new here, uh, it is legit, as they say.
0: No, absolutely. And, and you know, those guys are going to kind of introduce themselves with a series of collaboration pop-ups with NEO, which, you know, you and I went to the, the Japanese omakase pop-up. You know, hopefully that leads to dedicated Basso tastings between now and whenever they open, which should be, you know, March, April, we'll, we'll call it spring. Uh, Fingers crossed for a spring 2022 opening, but, but, you know, it's not just going to open with no introduction. There are going to be some pop-ups and people are going to get a chance to taste this stuff.
1: I love collaborative places. I I worked at a place in, in DC for a while where uh, for Mark Miller, where we had guest chefs coming in, you know, really high pedigree. uh, And even if they're not of like great skill and seeing like what they've done at, if I can interject with the whole thing at Neo, where they, you know, do these collaborative, you know, dinners, uh, omakasis every, you know, every month or so. You know, they're not changing it every week. They don't put that much pressure on themselves for that. It is just fantastic. You know, I couldn't be a bigger fan.
0: No, absolutely, and and you know the, you know, it, it's a little far afield, right, to start talking about restaurants that are opening in 2022. But you know, the race for for the best new restaurant of next year is certainly on, and, and I think you know, it's not unreasonable to expect that Basso will be very much in the mix for that.
1: Oh no. And that's, that's what we do. You know,
0: that's what we do. <laughs> that's right. It's we a, all, we're always, you know, and, you spare know, me, okay, you
3: know, right. like really,
0: right. It's not even what's new. Sometimes it's what's next. Right. All right. Let us move on to topic number three, night moves hospitality. This is the company that has, uh, recently opened space cowboy at the, at the Heights house hotel. And, uh, and Trash Panda Drinking Club in the former uh, Edison patent space. This is going to be their third concept. They are claiming Calle Onze uh, at the corner, or well, on 11th Street near near Yale Street for a new restaurant they're calling Chivos. uh, And that this will be, uh, they're describing it as a Mexican-American restaurant. And uh, our friend Thomas Billy who is the chef at belly of the beast in spring is going to be leading the kitchen. Uh, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I went to Kayonze a couple of times when it opened. It, it, it wasn't that it was good or bad. It's just, I have, you know, there's a lot of Tex-Mex in this town and I had other favorites. So it, it, it didn't make much of an impression. So I, I can't say I'm going to be too sad to see, to see it go.
1: Um, yeah, Kyle, I do say I had experiences there. It was fine. You know, uh, this is Houston. So the idea that you can travel more than maybe eight or nine minutes in a car and not hit a Tex-Mex place is a rarefied, you know, thing. It's everywhere. So, you know, for them moving into more of a Mex-Tex, you know, potentially Mex-Tex or Mex, you know, influence inside the loop there, that's maybe not as, say, high-end as what Hugo's is and, and that typically authentic, you know, or... Uh what's the place on Fairview uh with a C. Oh uh Kuchara. Kuchara, Kuchara, which is quite good too. Um, you know, it sounds like it'll have its own identity. And you know, uh Thomas Billy is just a great talent, you know. I've been there many times, I've shared many meals there with you uh at the belly of the beast, you know, which was always kind of a curious thing all the way up in spring that this food was here. And so having him inside the loop. You know, with a, a bigger audience will just I think I think it's a, a great stroke for both him and for them. And I'm really excited uh, to see what they have to, you know, to share. I guess Chivos, I think I read, you know, it means uh, essentially means goat, you know, so maybe having some takes on Cabrito and things like that. That's just that's really compelling.
0: Right. No, I, I agree. And for, you know, just to sort of reiterate, Right. Uh, Belly of the Beast was this, this kind of small restaurant in Old Town Spring that popped up at the very beginning, or the, either the very end of 2019 or the very beginning of 2020. A- and Thomas, who moved here from Los Angeles, he had worked at, at Odium, which is one of the best restaurants in that city, You know, had all these really creative ideas. He would do different uh, raw preparations, whether that's a ceviche or an aguachile. He would do Different moles, and he would make you know duck dishes and and goat, but but really he kind of got pigeonholed uh, with birria tacos, and, and basically he couldn't he couldn't make enough birria tacos to satisfy uh, the demand, and it kind of overshadowed the rest of his menu, and so you know I he he closed that down. It it just wasn't maybe a viable, it wasn't maybe everything he wanted. He is now partnered with Night Moves, which is. Uh, Greg Perez, who's the kind of the beverage and operations guy and chef Lyle Bento, who's worked all over the place to, to bring Chivos to life. And, and it's an interesting idea because it brings, you know, Thomas Billy's experience as as this very talented chef with these kind of veteran operators who who really understand the neighborhood and will help him sort of be successful, I think. And, and so, you know, it's not going to be Tex-Mex and it's not going to be sort of traditional Mexican in the, in the Hugos or cachar sense. They're, they're saying it's going to be Mexican American. And and I don't really know quite how Mexican American is different from either of those things, but I'm excited to find out. And, and I'm excited that Thomas has this new opportunity and uh, Chivas will open in sort of early to mid October. And, and then it's like, let's go, you know, let's see what happens. Cause I, I can't wait to taste
1: it. I'm uh, right there with you. His agua chilies are amazing. The ceviches. Uh, the nuance of flavor that he brings to bear with sometimes like heavy strong proteins, uh, you know, is really incredible. And uh, I think that's a great neighborhood to do it in. Uh, so I will definitely be there.
0: No, absolutely. All right, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Michael, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to do something just a little bit different. You have been sort of hitting a few barbecue spots around town recently. You know, I had Daniel Vaughn on last week. Texas Monthly is getting about ready to release its new list of the top 50 barbecue joints in Texas. Um, So maybe just kind of share a couple of your recent favorite uh, barbecue meals with the people. Uh, Give them a little guidance.
1: Um, we're seeing some like good growth. I mean, I'm I'm always eating barbecue. Uh, sometimes more, and sometimes less, depending on the week. Um, you know, what Russell Ragle? Russell Ragle has really got a good staff there now, and they recently moved into making their own sausage. Um, making your own sausage for a barbecue place is an incredibly labor-intensive thing, and in many cases, it's it's not a lack of skill; it's just a lack of you know time you know and staff to do that and there was a period where there was only one or two places that were doing it in town you know Tejas and Killens and and they and they continue to do a great job um but there are several companies you know uh that you know you can give them the recipes and they'll make it for you you know Rafino is really well known and, and well integrated into the Houston scene with that and they do a good job for a lot of places but now, Regal's is, is doing their own uh, sausage. I tried the jalapeno cheese sausage, and it was really just a great first effort. You know, good snap to the casein. The fat ratio was really, they really hit the mark on that. Uh, and then you get enough, just not too much of the jalapeno, just enough of the cheese, because you want them to both come together. And just a solid first effort. You know, Russell is one of the, definitely one of these people that has put himself out there. that someone who rests on his laurels, uh, you know. And uh, this is part and parcel
0: of that. Right. And then I, I noticed you also went to the No Bad, uh, Piper's collaboration pop-up that looked like a, was that pastrami whole hog? Is that what I saw in your yeah, social media? Right. They
1: called it a luau. Um, this was held in the Heights, a little place called Presley's uh, up on 18th Street. Um, and this was done under the, the aegis of Piper's Barbecue, which is on sh- nearby on Shepherd. Um, so Robert, the guy's out of Heights Barbecue, who's the pit master at Piper's. And, you know, the guys from Nomad were there and they just really they killed it. Just did a great job, you know, on this whole hog. It's, you know, we're starting to see more of that. And that's really exciting. You know, there was a while there that, you know, Patrick Fee just kind of put himself out there as he was the guy, really almost the only guy doing a whole hog in town. Uh, and he, you know, really learned by teaching himself as well as, you know, to some extent under the tutelage of Rodney Scott, you don't really get any better than that. Um, and now we're starting to see more places do this. Uh, and this is exciting. I mean, I, I love the basic Texas Trinity. Give me, you know, brisket, sausage and ribs every day, but um, the variation is, is great. And, you know, Russell Regal does one, like kind of once a month, you know, we'll, we'll see the whole hog will be back at Fiji's barbecue at their new location on Long Point. And I expect that to be as good as it's ever been. Um, but these guys, this was like their first effort and and they really killed it, man. It was a great job. The sides were fantastic. And, you know, it's exciting to see more places doing this. And it makes sense that, you know, kind of doing it just on the weekends or maybe once a week or maybe even once a month. Uh, Leonard Botello started doing whole hog on Saturdays at Truth Barbecue. And it's fantastic. It's like some of the best whole hog I've ever had. And that's, you know, I've had my share in North Carolina as well as other places. And I mean, it just goes back to his skill set and really his determination that he's not going to put any front anything in front of people that isn't just, that meets his incredibly high standards. You know, sometimes we, we might take it for granted that guys are just, well, they're smoking it, putting it out, and they've got it going. And it's like, it's a really hard business, not just in the hours that they do, but perfecting some of these proteins. And I know from talking to uh, other pit masters, you know, like, you know, Will Buckman among others, you know, Ronnie Killen, who like, they're if, if it doesn't meet their standards, they throw it away. They don't, they, you know, they'll, they'll take it to the local firehouse or police station and donate that, but they're not going to sell it until it really meets their standards. And we're seeing more of this whole hog popping up in places around uh, Houston it is uh, a great trend. I love it.
0: No, absolutely. And then uh, just for me, uh, I had a recent meal at the union kitchen out in Katy with uh, their owner, Paul Miller, and a couple of members of their PR staff. And, and, you know, I think, you know, Paul is a guy who's sort of never quite satisfied with the restaurants. He's, he's always looking to improve. And so they've just, they've rolled out a whole bunch of new dishes across uh, brunch, lunch, dinner. Uh, just a few of my favorites were uh were a lobster, uh, a lobster grilled cheese, and, and that's a that's a tricky sort of thing, you know. I I mean I like to go to Maine. I like to eat a classic lobster roll, which is basically just you know a lobster, swipe of mayo, buttery bun, uh, and so you know grilled cheese uh, makes me kind of nervous, but it had the right amount of cheese, sort of just enough to kind of hold the thing together, uh, and add a little flavor, but but not so much that it overwhelmed the lobster. Uh, the size of the lobster, the individual pieces were good. You could definitely got their texture in the sandwich. You got the, the sweet lobster flavor. Uh, I was really impressed by that. And then uh, a sous vide uh, bone-in pork chop, which, you know, it's, it's one of those dishes that you kind of see uh, a lot of places, but when it's right, it's right. And, and it's a really nice addition to, to some of what they're doing at the Union Kitchen. And then uh, maybe the most controversial, uh, a dessert pizza I got a kind of nasty DM from someone on Instagram. It's like, <laughs> stop trying to make stop trying to make dessert pizza happen. I mean, what's not to like about crispy dough covered in Nutella and a whole bunch of fresh berries? Like, why can't we just enjoy? Why why do we have to be pizza snobs? Why do we have to? You know, I get it. It's not it's not an Italian pizza. It, it would not pass muster with uh, the authorities that certify Neapolitan style pizza. I get it. But but it's delicious. Like just just enjoy the thing for what it is. Enjoy its deliciousness. So, and and also they they have a new an an all new bar staff that are really committed to to getting rid of the the mixes and the the, this and that. You know, good quality liquors, fresh juices, shaken order. Um, Really impressed by by all the cocktails I tried, and uh, you know, I mean, I you know, I I sort of respect the Union Kitchen for what it is. It's family friendly. It's relatively affordable. They've got a, a good wine list. Uh, and, you know, if you're out there in Katy and, and this place, this is not like this is not like in Los Interes or one of the sort of prime developments. I mean, this is like deep in the neighborhood. It's a really good addition to that area. And, and I was pretty impressed. And, and they're, they're doing that at all the Union Kitchens now. And, and uh, it was good to catch up with Paul.
1: I, I mean, I love to see that Katy was a dining destination of hell. You know, if you weren't going to a chain restaurant, you were cooking at home. And, you know, that is has been changing gradually over the last couple of years. And it's really things are just getting much better there. And that's uh, very heartening uh, and exciting to see. And Union Kitchen is clearly in for the long haul, uh, you know, with that kind of dedication to quality and to staffing. So, uh, yay for them.
0: Absolutely. All right, Michael, that does it for our restaurants of the week. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: One other thing I'd like to just uh, add in is that, um, you know, there's uh, Kroger's all across uh, Houston and two barbecue places have been doing pop-ups over the summer and they'll be extending into the fall. So Burns Barbecue, you know, out of the Acres Homes area, uh, the Anthony Bourdain favorite place uh, and Long Stalwart of the Houston scene uh, they are traveling around and doing pop-ups and Tejas barbecue is also continuing to do pop-ups with their, their fancy trailer. Uh, and I had the the good fortune to have some of the Tejas uh, a short while ago in the Heights and they're continuing with that. So, you know, look to their website, look to their social media feed. Uh, and, you know, so if you can't or don't want to make it out to one of these places or you're complaining about the lines, you know, we'll just pop up to your local Kroger when they're there and uh, have a good experience.
0: Absolutely. All right. Michael, thank you very much. My pleasure. And I'll be right back with Justin Ware and Patrick Apollos. I am joined this week by the owners of Night Shift, a bar that we've discussed quite a bit here on the podcast. Gentlemen, let me introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. Justin Ware, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Eric. appreciate you having us on. Patrick Avalos, how are you? Good, Eric. How are
0: you doing? Good. Thanks to both of you. Justin, let me just start with you because I know you a little better. I mean, I met you at Johnny's Goldbrick. Uh, you were the longtime general manager there. How did you kind of get into the cocktail business and, and maybe what was your, your path to night shift?
2: Um, well, I mean, there's a, there's a long story and there's, and there's a short story.
0: We've got a, We've got time for maybe the, the three minute version of the story. I got <laughs> it.
2: Um, so um, I've been in the industry for my entire life. I started, um, I say my entire life, my entire adult life. I started working um, at a, Buffalo Wings in college uh, as a means just to pay rent and have beer money to be real. And um, I started there, did that for a couple of years and then found something um, about myself that I've always enjoyed, which was like cooking and taking care of people and working within that. So I moved from there into a fine dining restaurant uh, called Veritas where I learned about wine and then classic cocktails. And that was right around the beginning of Anvil. And actually for my 21st birthday, uh, one of the bartenders there took me to Houston to Anvil. So, I actually had my like, you know, we call the come to Jesus moment or the aha moment uh, within the industry it was actually at Anvil on my 21st birthday when someone made me my first like really awesome old fashioned. And I said, I was like, I want to learn how to do this. And so I took some of the things from there went back to school, worked in the restaurant industry there for another year, got out, sold wine for a year, uh, was really bad at selling wine. <laughs> uh, not that I didn't like drinking or not that I didn't like enjoying it, but just more just the process of that, that, that force for sales was not one of my bags. So yeah, no,
0: I, I stink at asking people for money.
2: Yeah. it. I, one of
0: the reasons this podcast almost never has any sponsors. Cause I'm really bad. At
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time with like selling something that people don't want, but I have a really good talent for selling something that they do want. Uh, so when people come in for cocktails, I'm able to point them in a whole bunch of different directions, like based upon their own personal, like biases, you know what I mean? From there, I went back in the restaurant industry out of necessity, worked at a place called Soma Sushi on Washington. Um, I held every position there. It was right around that time I was like 24, 25. I was like, I wanna do this for the rest of my life. I knew I wanted to be like in the restaurant industry and I wanted to own my bar one day at that point. And so I just picked up every job that I could, like worked in the kitchen as a prep person on the line. I also worked um, as the shift manager. I held host positions, bartending positions. I was like a key holder. Like I did pretty much everything there. I did that for about three years and then decided that I want to try my hand at Mixology, like the full on like cocktail bar scene. applied at Anvil. I didn't get the job at Anvil. I did go through the staging, though, which was great. It was an amazing experience. Then um, since I didn't get the job there, Julep was opening and my resume got put on Alva's desk. I got uh, hired at Julep, worked there through the opening and then had the opportunity to move to uh, Johnny's Goldbrick, which is a little bit more of a position to grow and see, as uh, uh, like another, uh, experience from the beginning. Um, so I was part of the opening crew. I, w- I started on the day that Johnny's Goldberg opened. So I wasn't part of the opening crew, but I started on the first day. And then six years later, and I'm here with night shift, six, seven years later, no, six years, something like that. Yeah.
0: Something like that. I, I, I mean, I have a, I, I could look it up, but I, I mean, I, I remember being at Johnny's, you know, when it first opened with, uh, Leslie Ross now Krokenberger behind the bar and and just the the, the casual ambiance and the the base menu painted on the wall for eight bucks you know it, it really it kind of took that that whole like craft cocktail ethos and then just made it like so much more affordable and approachable I just I I've always kind of loved that bar even if I don't uh, get there as often as I might like to
2: yeah I don't go as much as I is is as I would like to, and my girlfriend's the general
3: manager over
0: there now, so. <laughs> uh, Patrick, how about you? What was, your, what was your kind of path to opening Night Shift?
3: So, at a really young age, like middle school, high school, I decided I wanted to get, like go in culinary arts or open a restaurant. I'm not sure what pushed me towards it. I think it was like watching Emerald or something on TV. Um, and ever since then, I've kind of just been pursuing the goal of opening something. So, I started selling shoes in my family shop. And then I got a dishwashing job. and started as a dishwasher um, at a local restaurant, worked my way uh, to line cook and then all the way up to sous chef. And we actually got nominated for best chef or he got nominated for best chef Southwest for James Beard. So we are doing a really cool like tasting menu where we go out and forage cuisine for the night and then serve it um, to our guests that day, which was a really cool experience. Um, then went had an opportunity to either go to culinary school or go to business school, decided I'd rather get the business degree first instead of going to culinary school. So went and got a business degree in um, hospitality management and then marketing and food science, and then ended up behind um, getting a a job at a hotel and went that corporate route, Um, worked with the JW Marriott in San Antonio, opened that hotel in their pool pool deck, Um, and then got the opportunity to go to Florida and work with Lowe's hotels for almost four years um, and started as basically a management trainee Worked in the restaurants and then found myself back behind, or found myself behind a bar. First, I started in wine, got really nerdy into wine. Um, at one point, wanted to get my certified or get my master som, and then I started getting more into bartending and going behind a bar. And then I took over the beverage program and ran that for about a year and a half at the Portofino Bay Hotel. And then after that, I wanted to open a hotel. It was something I kind of wanted to accomplish on uh, my bucket list. Got the opportunity to move up to the Woodlands and open the Weston in the Woodlands and did that for a year and a half and got their bar program rolling. Um, and then after that, pretty much met this guy and then we formed our company, Not Too Sweet, and started bar consulting. And I just kind of worked at a couple bars and helped them get their programs running. So, and we're here now. So, yeah. So what was it maybe,
0: uh, Justin, what was it about Patrick that made it seem like the kind of person you wanted to go into business with and, and open a bar with?
2: So, fun story, um, I actually didn't like Patrick at all when I first met him, uh, and Patrick did not like me very much when we first met. Him. I mean, he first met me as well. Uh, we actually met through uh, a cocktail competition called World Class, and World Class is put on by a company called Diageo, they own pretty much any major spirits brand that you know, so from Don Julio, Johnny Walker, Bullet, um, all the way to Tangeray, uh, big arrangement of different products. And they put on this global competition where they, uh, from a series of different points, you can go up to the national level and then even into a global level. So there is a global winner for Diageo world-class. Both Patrick and I made it onto the regional level um, our first year we met. And so we did a pop-up together actually at his hotel in Woodlands and we met and um, we then did the pop-up and then traveled together to the the, the regional uh, competition. And just because we were from the same city and from the same area, we, Started talking, started conversing about our concepts and what we're doing. And um ultimately what it like what it came down to is we kept that friendship for the next year. Uh I say friendship, the acquaintance that became a friendship the following year when we both ran regionals again. And so we worked a little bit closer together. And um I started realizing there was a bunch of things about Patrick that a bunch of skills that Patrick possessed that I didn't. Um, some of which being organization, some of which being uh, very numbers driven, some of being very, you know, analytical things that I'm all very capable of, but like just not as good of. And um, so oddly enough, after our third year of doing cocktail competitions together or during the third year, I think we were having a beer talking good about chance. the cocktail competition. And I was like, Hey man, do you want to open a bar together? And he said, yeah. And
3: <laughs> a couple years later, we're here. We were sitting sitting at the end bar right there by the, the wall menu at Johnny's. I remember and we were both, I was finishing my beer and he came and sat next to me and just leaned over and asked me. I'm like,
0: sure, why not? Let's do it. Yeah, I, I do think that sort of competition background. Well, let me let me just ask you actually, how has that background in competitions influenced the direction of night shift? Patrick, why don't why don't you start and then Justin, I'll let you jump in.
3: So Kaka competitions are always. I, I try and push as many people towards them as possible, especially like our team and like newer bartenders just because it pushes you out of element and meeting this wide array of people like where we're at now, it wouldn't have happened had I not met Justin through a cocktail competition. So it's been a big influence, especially world-class has been an influence on our, our trajectory and it's really cool to travel. I think the traveling opportunity has brought a lot to the table as far as what we've been offered because I know Justin's done too overseas for world-class, you went to Amsterdam. Um, I've been given the opportunity to go for brands for something else. And just even like going to New York and Chicago and going different places and understanding what cocktail culture is, has made a significant impact on what Night Shift is and kind of the opportunity that we've done is like the traveling that comes with it and brainstorming with other bartenders and seeing what they're doing in their individual markets and what people are drinking has kind of given us this kind of foot in the door, I guess, kind of way of seeing what other cities are doing and trying to incorporate that into the Houston culture that is uh, mostly known for like Anvil and, and Bobby Hugo and trying to to add to the prestige that is Houston is. Because one thing that we've talked about pretty frequently and especially in competitive circles is Houston is kind of like the underdog. A lot of people don't actually think about Houston in cocktail culture where I think Houston needs, it needs to start being a force. Like we have a lot of things that we're offering here in the city and what we're, we're doing. And like, there's a lot of great bartenders in the city that have, provide a lot of opportunities. So.
2: And I think to to kind of piggyback on what Patrick was saying about like cocktail competitions, like they had probably the, so the competitions themselves didn't have a whole lot of influence on the actual bar itself, but the experiences that we had based around that is what gave us a lot of experience. So being able to meet, like he said, bartenders from all different markets, Um, both Patrick and I have been able to compete on the national scale. So we had the opportunity to bartend alongside and with, and meet and converse with some of the best bartenders all over the country. Uh, and then also, like Patrick was saying, like I've had the opportunity to travel to Amsterdam and I've gone to Berlin and I've gone to uh, London and I've had the opportunity through these cocktail competitions to make the right connections to even be able to do like a stage at White Lion, um, which White Lion at its time when I was there was like the pinnacle of cocktail bars. Uh, and just because I knew Leslie Ross and she knew the people who knew the people who got me in contact with the right people, it it um, it gave me the opportunity to be able to 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 see and experience a whole different things that really influence not only like the way the bar looks but also some of the styles of cocktails we make. Um, one of the big things that I've noticed from traveling to different cities was like bars and food. Like even New York, like, like, like New York's the best example because everyone talks about New York but like every bar has to have food out there as part of their program. And realizing what benefit it did for me just traveling and seeing because I could get a late night bite while also still enjoying a really awesome cocktail. And so that was like the first like big push for us was like, all right, if we're going to do this. We're going to do late night food. Cause one there wasn't a whole lot of places that were doing it in Houston and the places that we're doing it, were doing a good enough job of it or it was water or Jack in the box. And yeah. so that played a little influence into our things as well. And then the cartel menu itself like grew out of an evolution of like, unfortunately the um, pandemic and a big push into some of our experiences with World Class and and other cocktail competitions about thinking outside of the box and how we can get cocktails to people in yeah. that time, and so our menu right now is very indicative of that. So we have the non-alcoholics that are on the menu that are on draft. Uh, we have the package options that are yeah. like one of our highest sellers, which is our our, our adult Capri Sun, which is a tropical cooler, and and so all of that plays into the the concept that we have as a whole.
3: Yeah. All right,
0: you, you've given me a lot. You've given me a lot to work with. So let's let's break that down just a little bit. Talk about the design of the bar and kind of the choices that you made. I'm going to say it's got a little bit of like a 90s vibe to it. uh, And I will let you sort of agree or disagree with that as you see fit.
2: I completely agree. So to start this conversation about design, we have to talk about our other business partner who is uh, solely, um, solely involved with all design and the fabrication of this place. It's a company called Root Lab. Um, they, um, operate, uh, here on the East end, they've been in operations for a while, but they're a design and fabrication company who's done things all over the city as far as, um, staircases and seatings. And they've done art style projects for, um, like parks. And they've worked with different, like larger companies for making like museum exhibits and things like that. And so they have a deep, deep pocket and arsenal of abilities to be able to make pretty much whatever we could think of. Um, and when we partnered with them, they wanted to put their best foot forward and make something absolutely beautiful that they could be excited about. And it just so happened to light up the fact that we wanted to open a bar that was within that same realm that we wanted people to be awed about. And so we it was a series of conversations between Patrick and I and then Root Lab about getting down the path of like what we want this space to look like. And to be honest, we just pulled pictures from the internet from places that Patrick and I have been or things that we had liked or concepts. And we kind of whittled it all down and the name Night Shift came through a series of random names that ended up on a piece of paper. And we actually connected two of them together and came up with Night Shift, um, which also helps play to like this side of town. Uh, but as far as the interior is concerned, we landed on this like Blade Runner kind of 90s yeah. retro futuristic space skyline is kind of like the yeah, like the weirdest skyline. way of describing it yeah. Uh, but yeah that was like where we started with our designers so
0: well and, and that makes a certain amount of sense right because you do have that rooftop patio with the view of the skyline so it all kind of ties together i mean i i haven't i haven't actually made it up there to sit up there yet but the the view is uh, appropriately spectacular yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, very very exciting that was one of our selling points for even signing the lease here yeah we were talking about the space and talking about like how it could work. And one of the selling points was the uh, train line that's right outside. That was very important to us, like, cause it was a transportive thing. You don't think of Houston in public transit. And so putting the public transit right outside where we can see it, it's like lit out a front window was really important. And we were really excited. Then we walked around to the outside of the building and kind of got a, a, uh, a glance at the, uh, walkway and we looked down the train line at downtown and it was at like six or seven o'clock at night when it was dark outside and it was absolutely beautiful and we were like all right we need to we need to capitalize on this because the skyline's beautiful it has the the train line out front and the rooftop patio came about later on down the line actually we didn't even think about putting a rooftop until we saw how beautiful it was over seeing it over and over time so yeah,
0: yeah. all right and and then uh patrick let me let me let me move from design on the cocktails because you you are sort of catering to a lot of different tastes. You have classics, you have originals, uh, you have multiple non-alcoholic options, which I, I think is just very accessible and, and very smart, uh, especially in 2021 when I, I just seem to know more and more people who, you know, sometimes they're drinking, sometimes they're not drinking. They want that flexibility. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about kind of putting that thing together and, and maybe what are, you know, one or two of your favorites that you're particularly proud of?
3: Yeah, so as far as the menu, it it took us almost like two weeks to figure out what we were going through. Like it went through three or four different iterations of what we wanted to do. Um, Just because we started, we have over, the bartenders know over 140 cocktails plus. And that was kind of like our master deck that we came up with. And then for that master deck, we just started picking and pulling. Like we had a couple brainstorming storming sessions between couple, just a couple. It, it was a
2: week of making it, it 140 was, cocktails just, and tweaking <laughs> all
3: of them. <laughs> made every, Where was I? Where was the phone call to come taste
0: just, uh, test cocktails?
3: Yes, just, Justin was making cocktails for an entire week there next door so eight in the open space, eight hours away that day. And we were just tasting cocktails until palate fatigue each day, figuring out which cocktails we wanted and which how to tweak them and modifying them to make the night shift way. So one of the iterations I remember we were talking about we went through and we we're like, well, we have a lot of stir cocktails on here, but we don't have we don't have a lot of shaking cocktails. So going through and figuring out what that balance was was um, quite a challenge, but I think we've kind of as you said kind of got a good balance going on with the menu between the refreshing and classics um, uh, losing refreshing classics and then the shift drinks um, the one cocktail that, I think we're both particularly proud of and I can, and we've gone through, I don't know, like 11 iterations of this cocktail now is the orange cream soda. So it, it completely has, it is still the same cocktail that we started with and it has morphed kind of into something that we were able to produce bigger and bigger volume because it started with a milk fat wash syrup, which took like 24 to 48 hours, which was ridiculous to figuring out where we, took the milk component out of it and we've reconstituted it into the soda where you have lactose powder. Now you have lactic acid, calcium lactate, which are all the primary components of milk. They're still integrated in the cocktail, but have reduced the time to maybe two, three hours of production. And we do the batching of that one. And it was something that we wanted to do that was kind of an upuse as well within the bar, because you see a lot of orange peels going out or peeled oranges going, sitting at the bar from all the old fashions. And we don't go through a lot of orange juice or most bars don't go through a lot of orange juice unless you have like a full brunch program, you're doing mimosas. So all that orange juice is going to waste. So it was a way for us to kind of upcycle or upuse those leftover oranges. And that was kind of the, the vision of what the orange cream soda was. So that's one of our fun, funner cocktails that we're most proud of. And then-
0: Well, and, and let me just ask you about the martini just because it, it comes in that, it, you know, it comes in a bottle. It's sort it yeah. super cold. Everybody has an opinion about wet, dry, throw the, you know, put the vermouth in the glass and then throw the vermouth like down the sink, you know, everybody. So, so maybe talk about kind of putting that particular recipe together and, and kind of where you came down on, on the martini. Yeah,
3: that was a fun one. So we actually worked with one of our bartenders, Josh Bearden. Um, he's also under industry alum. He worked at, um, Helen's Helen, Helen's in the Heights and then prohibition. Um, and that one was another fun experimentation. Julep well. And Julep, yeah, he did work at Julep as well. But that was another fun um, R&D session where we were finishing that cocktail recipe. Like the I don't night. know
2: if I'd describe it as fun. <laughs> yeah, like These things are all great and dandy. And like when you're <laughs> making cocktails, it sounds like, oh, look, I'm having all these spirits. I'm tasting all these drinks, and we're having fun. We, we were here until like Like five or six in the morning doing R and D on this cocktail. Yeah. And like the, the deal is, is like, right. So like, like talking about like the concept of the martini, like that was what we, we broke down from. And it was born out of the idea that when we were doing to go cocktails, we had this little four ounce guy that we had in a freezer that like, I wanted to have the experience of a really cold martini, but at your house. Yeah. And so you'd have to make it uh, things like that. And so we, we did this lemon infusion and we made this like kind of simple style martini and did what it needed to do during the pandemic. And like when we couldn't, when we weren't open yeah. and then we got in here and I tried to recreate it for the bar and it just fell flat. Like when we were tasting through the menu, we could see a bunch of really high points, really well-balanced cocktails. And then we had this martini, which again, like there's a lot of talk about what makes a good martini, what doesn't make a good G, and then like also sometimes the merit of a bar is judged on that martini, martini. and like, I wasn't happy with what we had. And so we brought Josh into it, who happened to be here with us uh, late one night. And we were like, Hey man, like, what do you think about a martini? And we, what we deduced amongst the three of us was a martini should be super cold. It should be really boozy. It should have really high quality ingredients in it. And it should be simple, but with the, uh, with the mindset of complexity, and so we went through the process of all these different styles of gin, all these different styles of vermouth, all these different styles of bitters, and um, we we landed on what we have now, and and we're really really proud of it. And like to be honest, most of the R and D work itself was put on Josh, because Patrick and I were so spread thin with like being here at every day at nine in the morning to make sure construction was going right, and making sure that you know the inspectors were pointed to the right direction, and making sure that you know the 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 sinks were to the left three inches versus right to the three inches. And so he put a lot of work into it and, and came up with this. And like, just for disclosure, we, we, we do, we do keep it in the freezer. It doesn't freeze. It's really, it's honestly a really high proof martini. So it's like it's definitely worth the $12 we charge for it. We use 10 grade 10 as the base. So super citrusy, super bright. We use Heyman's uh, Navy strength. Uh, so a high proof, very juniper Ford gin to give it a little bit more of the juniper backbone. Uh, We use Kamo's vermouth, which has a lot of like bergamot and like leathery notes. And then two different types uh, types of bitters. We use uh, black lemon bitters, which um, are like a Mediterranean inspired bitter that has a lot of spices involved. um, And then also like dehydrated lime. And then uh, Bitter Cubes Trinity Bitters, which has cherry bark, vanilla, orange, and then their burlesque bitters, not burlesque, uh, boulevard bitters, all blended together. So and those are all over the place as far as what flavors they are.
3: And so we serve it free, frozen.
2: We suggest it with a olive. Yeah, like a Toronto
3: olive specifically for that butteriness that you get in it, not just a standard like Queen Anne olive. Yeah.
0: And not a blue cheese olive.
2: I don't know. Uh-huh. That would be a little bit much yeah, for me. Like yeah. I love my blue cheese and I love my olives, but I like them separate. Um,
0: People love those things. I don't. It's, it's weird. I don't know how to explain it.
3: Yeah.
2: It, it's, it, it's a really good umami experience. Yeah. And I think that like it would play really nicely with that. I would be worried a little bit about the blue cheese getting a little too funky, but all in all, I think that it works really nice. Also the drink works really well with the citrus peel as well. So when people want to twist, we offer them a twist. Honestly, some people would say that the best way to go is a lemon twist and an olive. you get best of both worlds.
0: There you go. All right. And then let's talk about the food program. Uh, you, you hired chef uh, Daniel Leal, who uh, Justin, you worked with at, at Johnny's he had the a comer tacos pop up Um again, sort of my, my observation is that it's, it's all like very easy to eat by hand. It's for the most part, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of Mexican inspired without being like Tex-Mex or specifically like regional. Um, but I, I will say there's, those enchiladas, there's a little like fried enchiladas that are kind of like straddling the line between like, like a jack. Like it's like, it's not, it's, it's kind of fried, like a Jack in the box taco, but it's not it's obviously not a taco, it's an enchilada. And then those churros are kind of life changing. We've talked about them yeah. okay. a lot on the show already. So I'm not gonna belabor the point. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Um, but but maybe um Patrick, why don't why don't you sort of pick it up with uh what's it been like kind of working with Daniel and, and developing that that food menu?
3: But so chef Chef Danny's like he is he's awesome. We're we're very lucky to have him. He's he's a very, very talented chef. I'm just some of like like when we were doing, I'm going to go quickly real quick into a story. Like when we were doing R&D for the bar, some of the flavor profiles that he was pairing together were just like absolutely mind-blowing and mind-boggling. Of Like what he was taking, I can't remember what dish it was. Like we challenged him to make, um, I think it was some kind of chicken chicken wing dish that he's probably going to bring back at some point. It was some kind of chicken dish that we were tasting. And just like his understanding of like how to com- how to com- bring components together to make like this well-rounded, culinary experience that's approachable in a bar was still like really kudos to him for, for that he's really really talented really lucky to have him and but, as, you know.
2: as far as like yeah. like what we like the working process with chef was yeah. when we hired him we kind of gave him like yeah. carte blanche to yeah. like whatever he wanted to do we wanted to make sure that we accented like his culinary like expertise and his like understanding of flavors but through the lens of like what you're saying like small bar style food that has nods Maybe. to late night cuisine um, when we say late night cuisine, we started thinking about things like burgers, and we talked about um, like like the Jack in the Box tacos, actually. And like it's funny you describe them that way because that's the way I describe them when someone asks about them. Like like if the Jack in the Box taco had an older, more sophisticated brother who drank wine, that's what these would be. And so it's a good um, line. <laughs> a good one. <laughs> um, but then we even talked. We had a we had a brainstorm session about like late night guilty pleasures, oh, yeah. and that's how the gas station burrito was born. Uh, cause Patrick here, you can tell a story yeah.
3: about it. Gas station burritos. So growing up in college and even like going into when I was in Orlando gas station burritos are something that I could get like at the end of a, a bar shift when everything was closed, you could go to a gas station and get them. I know it's probably kind of sketchy to do that, but it was one thing that was kind of like one of the things I like going to, and kind of one of my pleasures, like Justin said. So I, we talked about it one day and chef was like, okay, let's do something with a gas station burrito. And then he, he brought us the R and D sample. And we both thought there was meat in it. And he's like, there's absolutely no meat in this whatsoever. And it's like, really? Still to to this day, like we give people the gas station burritos. Like, are you guys sure there's no meat in this? Like 100%. This is one of the things that Chef Danny is really good at is making vegetarian dishes taste delicious. Because sometimes vegetarian dishes can hit the mark if they're not seasoned. Well, have the understanding of flavors.
2: And a good portion of our menu is either vegetarian or can be made vegan. Uh, less of things vegan. We're still working on getting a couple of things that can be vegan, but, but a majority of our menu is vegetarian based um, outside of a few, like, you know, the chicken sandwich and you know, things like that. Yeah. So, uh, which is another thing that I'm really proud of.
0: I'll put in a request for gluten-free just because I'm hearing from more and more people for yeah, him. People. That's a priority.
2: Yes. Yeah. Something we, something we, 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 we've talked about, something that we uh, would like to get down, get down that path on. Yeah. So.
0: so, so let me just ask you kind of on a macro level, like, how's it going? Uh, because I think I've been now, you know, three or four times, I feel like I always run into, you know, other people from the restaurant industry kind of hanging out, checking the space out. I've seen it on my social media feeds. Uh, like I said, we've talked about it on the show quite a bit. So, so what, what's your perception of sort of how it's going and and are you sort of happy with the way people are responding to it?
2: I, I mean, it's, from 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 my perspective, it's going well. We are we're we're continually getting busier. Uh, the people are very excited about what we're doing here. We've had very little complaints, very little bad like reviews. Um, it's everything that I had hoped it was going to be, to be honest. Um, and you know, I, a, a few people have used this analogy uh, a couple of times. So, like my friend Benji Mason has said this, and then also Anthony Callio. Uh, Benji Mason said, "You you you build a ship, you put the sails up, and see where it goes, and you you hope that it goes in the direction you want, but you take it as a day, you know, take it as a day by day." And then Anthony Calio says, "Yeah, man, it's just like a pirate ship. You know, you you put everyone in front, and you let it kind of run itself, and see what happens, and let it go that direction, which is my way of handling it, which I've been very excited about it, um, and it's it's been a really interesting to see." How the staff is like interacting with the guests and then how the guests have perceived them and then how the the, the guests have perceived the cocktail menu, the space, uh, the new rooftop patio, um, and we've gotten nothing but like positive response for it. Um, There was a little bit of concern for myself personally about opening something on the East End, uh, something of like this stature um, because of, you know, the dreaded word gentrification and, you know, changing of the space. And that's really what we were hoping not to do. We were hoping to create a space that people were comfortable in from everything from the local neighborhood to someone who's out on a date coming from the other side of town. And I think we've done a pretty good job of meeting that, you know, within like the confines of like what this space has to offer.
3: Yeah. We have a, we have a really big local base. that has been coming in uh, saying how grateful they are to have us here, which is pretty awesome. They've been excited and following, following our progress throughout the, the two years, two years that has taken us to get to this point, so two plus, yeah. I think it's been it's been going very well, and then everything's been flowing, kind of slowly falling into place, which is we're very grateful that's
2: happening. And we've only been open two months, yeah. and we're doing great, yeah, you know, as far as that's concerned.
0: Yeah, so so Patrick, maybe what are some of your future plans? I mean, I how would you like to see the program grow in the next say? You've been open for two months. Like, where would you like to be at the six month point?
3: I think by the time we get to that six month mark, we're, we have brunch which is coming soon. So once we have brunch cranking, I think we're gonna have this bar that's just gonna be humming all the time. It's getting to that point where I know you've been in here. We've always consistently had people in here um, every single day. It's never not quiet. And if it does get quiet, it's only for like a quick like 30 minutes, and then all of a sudden it just fills right back up again. So I think in six months from now, I mean we'll get we'll be through our Christmas pop up at that point. So. Hopefully we will be pretty well established and we'll have a regular clientele coming in. I think we'll be doing more fun events and being just kind of a beacon for the East side to, for people to come out and check it out and see what, what it has to offer. It was kind of our end goal.
0: Yeah, no, I, I did observe that when I was in last week that we sort of walked into the lull and then, you know, pretty soon it was like a couple of people came from a couple of people that I had seen at how to survive, walked down the street, you know, uh, a manager from Nancy's hustle walked in with a couple of friends. It's like, it all kind of makes sense. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely drawing people who work in the neighborhood, people who live in the neighborhood. And so you had that, like, and it was still like, I, I walked out around midnight and it was still, it was definitely still going.
2: And that was like kind of like some of our inspiration behind the name Night Shift. I mean, Patrick and I have been working in this industry for our entire adult lives. And, you know, we we, we knew what it's like. We, we know what it's like to be there and especially to be a bar open late. And that's, again, going kind of back to why we wanted to the kitchen late, too, is we wanted to make sure that we were that place that someone after their long shift at the restaurants on the side of town could come into it, still get good quality food late and, you know, offer the esoteric, weird, nerdy, bar people stuff that we had on the back bar but also like we've got Lone Star in the in the fridge and we've got you know High Life and like actually we don't carry any all of our draft beers are like craft local like very like you know niche and then we just carry a bunch of junk beer for bartenders honestly
0: (laughs) all right so before I, I wrap this up is there anything else you would like to discuss that I haven't asked you about
2: not really. I, just, I mean, like, by like touching on the changes, like, like, like the, the space and how people are interacting with it, our patio has become like a very big draw. And like we already talked about it recently and uh, it's been a really interesting thing. We, we kind of expected the patio to be like kind of just overflow and people are going to spend a lot of time inside and it's turning out to be like a major attraction for us. Um, so we're working through that on a pretty regular basis. Uh, Patrick kind of glazed over it, but um, coming up in um, uh, the uh, November, December, uh, we'll actually be doing uh, Miracle, uh, not Miracle, we're doing Sipping Santa, yeah. which is uh, the spin-off from Miracle, which is what uh, Johnny's Goldbrick does every year where they just completely Christmify the entire place. And it's Christmas themed cocktails and music all the time. And um, we're doing the tropical tiki version of that here at, uh, at Night Shift. So Night Shift will become uh, a little bit different of a thing in uh, uh, late November to all the way through the new year.
0: Yeah, and I remember Laylo did that yeah. uh, maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. It, it's super, like even as a Jewish person who does not celebrate Christmas, it is just all the like super kitschy, like fun aspects of the the Christmas season. Yeah, uh, and I, I mean, I certainly felt very welcome in that environment, and so I'll be, uh, I'll be excited to see uh, you guys uh, jump on that because I think it's going to be super fun.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. And then uh, Patrick touched on brunch as well. Uh, we keep using the word soon, air quotes. Um, we have to be able to get our, our feet under us because the bar is increasing in sales rapidly. If we're growing a popularity rapidly. And um, I feel like every day we're like trying to play catch up on figuring out, well, that happened here. How do we fix this? Um, so we're, we're working into brunch um, at some point in time. I would expect a couple of months. You know, we've, we've been saying soon, since we opened, thinking that we were going to be a little bit ahead of it, and I'll be the first person to say that this whole managing, running a bar, and then uh, you know working on that side of it to get everything up and running has been a lot bigger undertaking than I could have ever imagined. Um, I think I might have said to you the other night, like like I had a a positive and negative of how much I expected to experience positive and you know positive feelings, negative feelings, and it's been about ten times on either side of that. So, my highs are super high, my lows are super low. And, like, same thing with problems in this space. I know we had like certain problems that were going to be like really good. Things are going to go really great. And things are going great are going really well. Things are going bad we're like, oh shit, we got to really fix that. So, it's been a, it's been a up and down as far as like the ownership side of it all. Uh, but the bar is going great and we're yeah. moving forward. And my ultimate statement on that was that uh, brunch is coming. I would expect a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple months for it.
0: Patrick, just, uh, just to wrap this up, what, what was your biggest surprise from owning a bar? What's the thing you you didn't anticipate that, that's been the most unexpected?
3: Oh, man. That's a good question. I think, like, opening the West, and there was a lot of things that caught kind of us off guard, but now, as, a, as an owner and being like, this is our place, I think that's probably been the biggest thing that's kind of like been sinking in more and more as the weeks go by. Like, when we first opened, I was. It, I was it was really excited, but I didn't feel the emotions. And as as it's progressed, I'm feeling more and more emotion, as far as like making decisions and just like Justin said, it's a ship that you're just gonna try and control as much as you can, but you just kind of like got to go with it sometimes. And the ship's gonna go in a direction. So hopefully, there's not an iceberg in front of you that you have to figure out how to navigate around. But it's going in a good direction. So,
0: well, glad to hear that because I like I said I'm you know I've been a few times. I really enjoy it. Um, I I also moved not to, not to the East end, but to the third ward. So you guys are not, it's not far, uh, from, from where I live to night shift. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's been a nice, it's been nice to have that as an option, uh, without having to go all the way into Montrose or, or as an alternative to, to Midtown, you know, and there's only so like, there's only so much drinking I want to do in the Heights if I'm going to drive myself home. So, uh, I'm super happy to have happy you guys are here and, and glad it's going
2: well we're excited to be here yeah, thank, thank, and thank you for coming in and also like i don't know if i actually told you but thank you for all the mentions um, of us it, mean, it means a lot
0: well that's what we're here for all right before i let you go we have to play the lightning round five easy questions five short answers just say the first thing that comes to mind patrick avalos what is your favorite cocktail book
3: my favorite cocktail book is going to be in invite
0: justin how about you
3: uh, the Bar Book by Jeffrey
0: Justin Ware, what is the first band you ever saw in concert?
2: Oh, shit. Uh, I actually don't remember. Probably a band called Authority Zero.
0: <laughs> Patrick, how about you?
3: Uh, stick Scenario Speedwagon with my parents, <laughs> yeah.
0: Nice. Patrick, what is your fast food guilty pleasure it has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru?
3: Um, I would say ooh, Raising Cane's, the Caniac. Justin, how about you? Um,
2: double bacon cheeseburger with jalapenos and mustard from Whataburger.
0: All right. And then, Justin, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present?
2: Oh, man, you're asking the wrong person. I don't watch any sports.
0: That's, I, I get that every now and then. Patrick, do you have a favorite Houston sports figure?
3: I don't know. I don't really I'm like, I'm on kind of the same train as Justin. I really watch sports. All
0: right. Uh, and then finally, Patrick, when, you, when you're going to a pizzeria, what are your go-to toppings?
3: pepperoni and cheese just classic
0: justin how about you
2: i like the more stuff so like some form of supreme uh a little bit of everything
0: uh gentlemen give us the give me the website and the social media and all that for night shift
2: our instagram is at night shift bar um and our website is nightshiftbar.com um actually all of our social media is at night shift bar so it's pretty simple um, our website has all the information there as well. You can get links to our Instagram and um, all of our uh, menus and all that jazz.
0: Thanks so much for doing this.
2: All right. Appreciate it, Eric. Thanks, Eric.
0: You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culture for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.